We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In our Old Testament reading, we're going to be finishing up Ruth, so it's, it's a long one, so hang in there with us. Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elder of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of the redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one who drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought, bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead might not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrathrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman in the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are. In the final week of our book of Ruth, before we head into next week, we'll be starting our missions month. Uh, each week in June, we will be having a guest missionary come and preach for us about the importance of missions, about not just learning more about the importance of missions, but, but our church developing a culture of what missions work is going to be. So we hope that you'll be able to join us for that and stay after service for uh, our presentations. Uh, but... This is our last week in what we've been calling in the sermon series, The Gospel from Famine 
to harvest, showing how God is working in the deepest trials and hardship of our lives and showing his covenantal kindness and faithfulness to us in the lives of Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth. All who display faithfulness to pursue the harvest, like we talked about last week, despite the risks, the anxieties, and expectantly hoping for God to act. And so this week, we dive into this hope that is realized, where everything culminates into a surprise ending of the narrative, something that we would not have thought to be possible at the beginning of our time here in Ruth. You see, redemption, as we'll find out, looks nothing like we expect. And the redemption of all these characters gives us a window into what redemption looks like in our lives and in the lives of God's people. So before we uh, begin, can we pray together? Father, as we look to the redemption we find in Christ, I pray that you would be revealing to us false redemptions, false redeemers, and see how inadequate they are. Pray that our, your word today would remind us of the great king who comes to redeem those who seem the most far away from redemption, that we would be sustained all the days in our lives from the harvest that Christ has won for us. May your word speak powerfully now. In his name, amen. You know, for most of us, um, when we watch movies or TV shows or read a good book, we, lo we long for the journey at the end of the story to end with a happy ending. We want the resolution of the story to result in the great evil being conquered, the, the characters in the story being rounded out, the, the life of the kingdom or the land or the people who come out on the other side at the end of the story to, to prosper. Everything hinges on the ending. In fact, if the ending isn't done right, then everything else in the story that happened, no matter how wonderful, how great, how exciting, how well-crafted, will fall completely flat. We leave the story unfulfilled and discouraged, and in fact, we feel like we have wasted our time completely. So there's a lot of pressure on this sermon, but that's okay. For the end of Ruth, we find redemption in the story in meaningful and wonderful ways. But like the best stories, they tell it in such a way that makes the ending more satisfying because of the way the narrative surprises us. We find characters changing in ways that we couldn't have imagined. We find the story that gives us a twist that we couldn't have seen. And all of this, the purpose of that story gives purpose and meaning to our own lives. This is why the book of Ruth is so transformative and has been for every people of God in every generation. This is a story that tells a tale and leaves us with this powerful imagery of a God who saves us and it continues to grip us. It reminds us, as we've learned, that the famine is real. It's a real reality that uh, we need to sit in it sometimes, that we need to grieve in it. It reminds us that God gives us space in our famine to come back wounded, perhaps even bitter, and hurt, but knowing that we are not left alone. It reminds us of the ways in which, when even though it seems like a coincidence that fortune falls upon the weak, the poor, the oppressed, that God has ordained all the things to come together in such a way that he pours out his generosity and care, that it's not an accident, that God is behind the scenes, that, that his kindness is filling the ones who are grieving with hope. 
that leads us to pursue the calling that God has given to us. And behind everything that we've been talking about so far is the person of Christ, the person of redemption, the one who leaves us with the expectant hope of his return. So what does the happy ending of Ruth that we've just read about give us to walk away with? Uh, Just two things here today. One, redemption saves us from incomplete redeemers. Redemption saves us from incomplete redeemers. And two, redemption adopts us into a new family. Redemption adopts us into a new family. So let's start with how the story ends with redemption redeeming Ruth and Naomi from incomplete redeemers. When we last left our tale, Boaz was on his way to fulfill his promise to Ruth, who had just proposed to Boaz earlier in the narrative in a daring move. And so Boaz heads to the courthouse of his day, this this place where Boaz could actually fulfill the role of, of redeemer to Ruth and Naomi and lay claim to the land that used to belong to Elimelech, Naomi's husband. So Boaz calls the elders who would have been at the gate to serve as sort of the judge and jury to certify that he is doing this work of a redeemer correctly. You see, Boaz, in other words, he doesn't try underhanded tactics or to sort of rush the process of redeeming Ruth for the sake of urgency. He knows that the ends don't justify the means if the means aren't done with integrity. So he must confront this other redeemer and give him the option to redeem Ruth Naomi. Now, some of you who are very astute, maybe very well read, maybe asking yourself the question, you know, wait a minute. I thought Naomi was destitute. How in the world could Naomi own land and yet remain in poverty? Well, how does she have land to sell? having to rely on Ruth and to work in the fields in order to survive? What's happening that would even require Naomi to to be in this situation? Um, In order to understand this, and we're going to fly through this, we need to understand and turn to the Old Testament law and and get into some legalese. Um, You know, a little law and order Bethlehem is what we're going to need to do here. So you see, when Elimelech and Naomi fled Israel, because of the famine, to, and they left to Moab, they sold the rights to their land to enjoy the use of their land they owned, and they left it in accordance with the law. But that land still belonged to Elimelech's family. In Leviticus 25, 23-27, we see that they have the rights to buy the land back that they had sold temporarily. However, because of Deuteronomy 21.16, the normal practice was for the sons to inherit the land, which in lieu of sons to Naomi's family, led for the inheritance to fall to her daughters in accordance with the law of Numbers 27.4, who must only marry according in the clan according to Numbers 36.6, and if none of those things apply, then Numbers 27.9-11 is invoked, which means that the closest relative is the one who has the rights to buy back the land in what's called a kinsman redeemer, a kinsman redeemer relative who can redeem the land that was previously sold. Whew. All right. Now, if all of that sounds confusing and difficult and hard, it's because it is. And you'll begin to understand the sort of bind that Naomi is in, the situation that she's placed under. She is a widow without her two sons 
and no daughters, except for a Moabite daughter-in-law, and is left looking for a redeemer that could aid her in providing the land that she needs. So the character of this redeemer that's going to come is incredibly important to her line, to her survival, to her legacy. A bad redeemer is going to ruin the story. The bad redeemer is going to create an unhappy ending. So this is why Boaz has to be incredibly careful about how he presents the story to this redeemer and about what is happening here. There is this potential, as in all cases of the law, for the law to be misinterpreted, misunderstood, or taken advantage of, or even exploited. And all those things would put Boaz's promise to Ruth at risk. So, Boaz presents the case in these verses, faithfully, with integrity and honesty, this worthy man. And the heart-crushing news comes up. The Redeemer, he wants to claim it. Boaz, it seems, for a brief second, won't be able to fulfill his promise to Ruth. It seems as though all is lost. But the story reveals a twist that Boaz had, an ace in his pocket, a fact about the land and the law that the Redeemer did not consider into play. You see, verse 5 tells us that the land comes with a potential obligation, that this Redeemer must continue the name of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, that a child must be born through Ruth the Moabite, and that the inheritance would continue on to this name. And, and here we find out everything that we would want to know about the character of this Redeemer on play. You see, uh, Ruth, the author of Ruth is very intentional. The Redeemer goes completely unnamed. In fact, it's almost akin to saying, you know, that guy over there is essentially the, the translation, right? He's given the option to do three things. And all those choices would reveal something about the character of this Redeemer. The first option. He could agree to redeem the field and marry Ruth and raise up an heir to redeem the property back to Naomi, but that would come at a huge cost to him economically. He would lose more than the price he paid to redeem the land and would not even be able to keep the land that he acquired. You see, by passing it on to eliminate in his line, he would damage his own inheritance of his own family and fields and his own worth by doing so. In other words, all right, this makes zero financial sense for this Redeemer to do that. Although it would be the noble thing to do. Number two, he could buy the field and simply ignore the pledge to marry Ruth. Since she is not technically a direct daughter of Naomi, he could just say that he would do it to sort of save face in front of this crowd but actually not be obligated to at all. In other words, he could agree in principle, but would not be bound, according to the text that we just saw, in direct legal sense, to continue what this, it's called this Leverite marriage. But if he does that, then the elders watching the scene and those around him will have seen his commitment not being done. All right? And given Ruth's growing reputation in Bethlehem as a worthy woman, this would have been a disastrous choice for the Redeemer in his social standing. And finally, third, he could relinquish his right to Boaz, avoiding the potential embarrassment both socially and economically and save face by giving up his rights to Boaz. 
So these are the choices presented here. And how the Redeemer instantly responds before the, you know, before sort of just even a breath passes by, he says, no thanks, uh, tells us a little bit about the Redeemer's character and how incomplete of a Redeemer he is. You see, he leaves when the situation calls for him to sacrifice. He realizes that this choice to take Naomi's land has a negative consequence for him. And so in doing so, he takes the option that incurs no cost. He's a redeemer that doesn't allow any uh, negative impact to be incurred on himself or his own family. He rather wants the benefits of redemption, but none of the pain of what the redeemer's role would require. You know, one of my favorite shows on television uh, is a show called Shark Tank. Any Shark Tank fans here? Right? Right. Some of you guys are right, right. on ABC. All right. It's a show that is a stunning illustration on incomplete redeemers, okay? Uh, if you've never seen the show, all right, here's the basic premise. You've got this group of sort of mega rich, mega powerful businessmen and women and entrepreneurs, and they're called the sharks. And they listen to people in need of redemption, these businesses that are built upon great ideas, but they need help to take their business to the next level. And, and the sharks, all they want to know is not just simply how to help the business or the brand, but rather they want to discover what's wrong with the business. All right, so on the show, they press these businessmen. Are you in debt? Do you have inventory for your products? What's, what's the amount of money you made last year? How much did you lose? And, and when a business goes up there with a perfect record, with a perfect set of circumstances, then the sharks instantly act like redeemers. We will save your business. We will redeem you. We will give you millions of dollars. This thing's gonna blow up. You and I, we're gonna be perfect together. If you give me 20% of your company, <laughs> right? But what about all those other businesses? The businesses that come with flaws, that have massive debt, that are waiting on a lifeline for someone to save them. And suddenly, what happens with these sharks, these quote-unquote redeemers? They all slowly smile very kindly and say, I'm sorry. For those reasons, I'm out. Can't save you. And they all back away. You see, they all smile, they all have compassion, but ultimately they look at the problems with the people and they say, this is no benefit to me. Why would someone like me redeem you? It would be foolish for me to do so. And yet, year after year, season after season, these desperate people go to the sharks knowing they are in trouble, barely hanging on just for a chance for a shark to save them. They want redeemers that will only have something to gain from them with nothing to lose. Friends, we may ask ourselves, why would these desperate businesses do that? Why would they go to these incomplete redeemers until we look at our own lives and realize that we look for incomplete redeemers all the time? Incomplete redeemers that will promise to deliver us something if we have no flaws or if we do nothing to harm them or cause them to suffer in any way. Our work will say, we will give you redemption. We will provide you fulfillment if you never miss up a deadline or if you never leave us. Our families will say, we'll promise to be the perfect family as long as you never hurt us and give us everything that we want and never miss out. 
our social circles will say that we're your real family. Everything, you know, from CrossFit to yoga to photography to dancing, you know, we're your real family. As long as you continue to perform at the level that we want to desire to seek you and you never demand too much from us. And oh, by the way, pay your membership dues and your entry fees. You know what the beautiful thing about the gospel is? Is that Jesus looks at your portfolio, the portfolio of your life, and he sees the debt of sin. He sees the weight of all your flaws and mistakes. And he looks at all of that and he says, I will redeem this. This will cost Christ greatly. This will cost him everything he has. This will cost him his life. But he will redeem you and I to reclaim the name even though there is absolutely no benefit to him whatsoever. It will only be because he loves you so much and covenants with you in such a way that even if it causes him to die, him to be crucified, him to suffer, it doesn't matter. Why? Because he's the complete redeemer. Because a real redeemer isn't redeeming solely for what only he has to gain, but to pull those in need of redemption out of the miry clay and to set their feet upon a rock. And this is what makes Boaz's commitment to Ruth and Naomi so much more admirable. You see, he's willing to give up his life for the sake of Ruth and Naomi. He's willing to incur the cost that it will take. He's willing to fulfill the duty, even though the law says, technically, you don't have to. He gives up his life so that Ruth can continue on. Look at verse 10 of our text here today. Ruth, I have to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off. Ruth, uh, Boaz solemnly swears to redeem this family, to honor that which seemed like a famine so long for them and promises them new life. And that's what leads us to this second part of redemption, is that redemption adopts us into a new family. You see, after the Redeemer gives the rights to Boaz, Boaz is awarded the rights, which would simply be just the legal tender. Uh, they take off their sandals, as it was the custom, and sort of like, you know, signing on a dotted line. It's, it was their tradition. And then there's this speech that the elders give that you may have glossed over in your reading of Ruth. Something that you can miss out, that, that the elders are pointing to the hopes that they have for Boaz and Ruth, something that is a foreshadowing of both the past and the future. They say this, something along the lines of, may the Lord make Ruth like Rachel, Leah, and Tamar. And may Boaz's house be like the house of Judah. Now this should be astonishing to anyone who's reading this as an Israelite in this passage because immediately several things come to mind. Rachel and Leah were the matriarchs of the Israelite faith. Their sons would be the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God who would be in the, the promised land of blessing and protection and care for the people of God. And who is the most blessed son of these 12 tribes? Judah, whom the promise was given in Genesis that the, that Genesis, that the rulership of the 12 tribes would never leave his house. Kingship of these tribes would be in the house of Judah forever. 
So these elders say to Boaz when he marries a Moabite Gentile who was a pagan, poverty-stricken, and destitute, that his line should be blessed to the highest degree that an Israelite could bless another individual. We don't care where Ruth has come from. She has covenanted with God. We don't care what she owns, what she has. She has been loved by the kindness of God. Boaz, we don't care that you are an old man, an unmarried old man doomed to die and be forgotten. We know that you are now forever a part of the story of God's blessing. See, redemption for Boaz brought about a change to everyone involved in such a way that adopts them into a new kingdom. And they are brought into the kingdom of God, not just for their own survival, but for something greater. You know, this becomes even more astonishing, this speech by the elders, when you consider the reality of the characters that these elders are referring to. Rachel and Leah were not perfect mothers. In fact, they were a part of a large deception scheme and were, were bitter rivals when it came to their children. Judah, who only has children because Tamar tricks him into having it, is not exactly the role model that you would want to consider being the one bearing the family name. I mean, read Genesis 38 if you have any doubts about this. And yet, Boaz and Ruth are being told, as God has redeemed those stories of those women in Genesis, he will do the work of redeeming your name into a new family, that your stories will be more than just your famines, your devastation of sin. It will be a legacy that will be a part of God's people forever. Do you know what the gospel does to us when Christ redeems us? He takes whatever story, whatever history that you've had that seems irredeemable, ugly, complicated, troublesome, and places you into a new trajectory and a new family, a new storyline, where you are part of the redemptive work that could have never appeared to even been possible. When Christ adopted us into his family, as the Westminster Catechism reminds us, this was an action of God's free grace that we may enjoy the privileges of the children of God that we have God's name put upon us, that we have access to the throne of grace with boldness, that as, as the catechism says, we are protected, provided for, and never cast off, sealed to the day of redemption to inherit the promises as heirs of an everlasting salvation. Friends, the story of your life for those who are in Christ, it carves a path that is beyond your deepest regrets and your worst trials. You are part of now a redemption plan that has brought you into Christ's family. He calls you his brothers and sisters. He calls you a co-heir with him in salvation. You will be given an eternal life that will outshine the histories of the past and the histories of the lies we tell ourselves of our own worth apart from Christ. Redemption changes us from something from who we were to something new altogether. Uh, I promised to you that 
I will try and not use too many sports analogies in my sermons. I, I understand that's an overplay trope, but, but today is not that day. Uh, so I apologize to those of you in this room who are tired of hearing sports sermon analogies. Um, I promise you this isn't just because the NBA Eastern Conference Finals is absolutely insane right now. Although I won't lie to you and tell you that this isn't a part of why this analogy has made this sermon. So Jimmy Butler, all right? Uh, a, a superstar basketball player from the state of Florida is on the verge of leading a team that was ranked dead last at the start of the playoffs and is now one game away from making the NBA Finals. Uh, but anyone who knows the story of Jimmy Butler will realize that he should have never made it to the NBA. He was born in the tiny town of Tumball, Texas, a population of only 12,000 people. His biological father left him. His mother, who had been suffering from a drug addiction, kicked him out of his house when Jimmy was 13 years old, saying to him simply, I don't like the look of you. You gotta leave. So alone, unwanted, he slept around his friend's couches until his senior year of high school where he made a friend by the name of Jordan Leslie, who offered to take him into his house that had six other siblings, a stepfather, and a mother by the name of Michelle Lambert. Michelle looked at Jimmy and committed herself to say, from that point on, you need to stay with us. You need to move in with our family, after finding that he had nowhere else to go. Jimmy would move on to become an NBA star against all odds. Traded away to, from the 76ers to the Miami Heat, sorry, Luke, uh, you know, uh, apologize, right, Luke Lee, and became a legend in his own right. But the part of his story that astounds me is the way that he chose to reconcile with his biological father and mother. That after they rejected him, uh, he went to pursue them. He went to reconcile their relationship. And what would lead him to such an action? Uh, Jimmy accredits his, his faith in, in the Lord and the redemption that God placed on his life. He says this, I know I couldn't write the story of my life myself. Uh, there's no way. Uh, Someone has always been there for every single occasion. I can't tell you how, I can't tell you why, or how anyone would know, but that's just God working in my life. This is the turnaround you see, not just for Jimmy, for us, but for Boaz, Ruth, and especially Naomi, whom the narrative spends some of its final verses on. And suddenly the character of Naomi is completely rounded out and complete. She is changed from the woman that we first saw in the narrative, empty, devastated by the effects of the famine, giving herself untrue names, brought into the new family with a legacy of Ruth's kindness, and all of a sudden she is blessed in such a way that Ruth's presence is worth more than seven sons, a number of, of completion in the Old Testament, a, a life that is restored that would not have seemed possible given the characters in the story. But redemption changes who we once were into something completely brand new. We who were bought and adopted into God's family will find ourselves renewed 
in such an incredible light, a place that removes all pretense and barriers and affliction, a place that draws us to the throne of God where the famine will be no more and we will receive the final harvest, the worship of God forever and ever with Christ in the heavenly kingdom his face shining radiantly on all of us as we live, now live in a place where famine, famine simply cannot exist. We were bought by a redeemer of great price and we were given new names and a new life. And that's why the book of Ruth ends the way that it does. It ends with these 10 genealogies to show and reveal a very surprise happy ending. King David, the promised king of the covenant that would lead to the kingship of Christ is a part of this family. That the 10 years of barrenness that Ruth experienced would now lead to 10 future generations. There are 10 generations listed here of a continued legacy leading to the greatest promise that a family could be given. That the promised redeemer of Genesis 3 would come and arrive and be a complete redeemer to his people to change not just their stories, but the stories of all the people of God. This is the happy ending of Ruth. The ending that makes us see that Ruth is ultimately a gospel story of our own lives. What Christ has done as the kinsman redeemer. And he saves us from all the incomplete redeemers and calls us into a new family and restores our famines into harvest. Let's pray together.